It's a beautiful day along the coast of Carolina, as the Jimmy Buffett song goes. Hello, it's Rick Jones, the captain of Fishbait Marketing, and your host from the bridge. We're going to talk about fans today, all about fans, because in this pandemic crisis, we have all finally realized that fans actually pay for everything. <laughs> if you don't have any fans of your restaurant, you don't have any customers. If you don't have any fans of your television program, you don't have any viewers. And certainly when we're without events, we have no fans, and it's been pretty catastrophic. I recently produced a six-part series on YouTube on the process that I use to sell corporate sponsorships. The consistent message throughout that series is that everything in sponsorship should be about fans because fans pay for everything in sports and entertainment, either indirectly or, in most cases, directly. For every team, league, or event, your greatest and most valuable asset are your fans. Okay, a lot of people at Alabama would say Nick Saban's our biggest asset. No, 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 no. The biggest fan are the Alabama fans roll tide. Duke fans might say Coach K's their biggest asset, but no, the biggest asset there are the Duke fans. People think LeBron's the biggest uh, uh, asset of the Lakers. Nope. It's Laker fans. And how about the Augusta National? We missed the Masters. The Masters is nothing. I don't care how great the golf course is or how great the players are. The Masters is nothing without fans. Again, it's all about fans. I had a wonderful former boss, a guy named Chuck Jarvie, who we've talked about in the past. And Chuck had a great definition of an affinity group, that, that special group of fans. He said an affinity group was a group that would suspend rational behavior in pursuit of their passions. I really like that definition because those are the fans we want and really need, especially right now. You know, we've seen so many restaurants that have been shut down. I live in a great food town, and I'm not sure which ones are going to bounce back. And it's really going to be by their they're fans, the ones that just missed it so badly they can't wait to get back there. Now, at our agency, Fishbait, we try to reach fans through their lifestyle, what we call their tribes, and we do it in four major cultural areas. Our first area, of course, is college sports. I'm a Georgia Tech fan. Go Jackets. In country music, uh, Alan Jackson had a great song called He's Gone Country, Look at Them Boots. We try to reach tribes in their outdoor sports activities. Um, I like to remind people there's a reason we call it fishing and not catching. <laughs> um, and finally, we reach fans through food activities like food festivals and food competitions. question I have to ask you today is do you uh, live to eat or do you eat to live? Um, these are all tribes made up of a collection of fans. Now, for any organization— um, any event, arts events, music events, sporting events, your key is how do you connect with those fans? And there are really four essential steps for you to do that. Firstly, you need to actually identify who's a member of your tribe. Now, that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but the truth is many, many times we don't know who our fans are. Uh, in college sports, we have a group that I call the Dirt Road Alums. These are the people that are big fans of Clemson, and they've never been to Clemson. 
Uh, they've grown up wanting to support the Tigers. They watch the Tigers on TV. Uh, there's lots of those dirt road alums out there. There are lots of fans of lots of organizations that never appear because they're not in a database anywhere. They don't show up on a ticket manifest. Uh, so you've got to firstly identify who are the members of your tribe. Then secondly, you've got to communicate with those tribal members. And then thirdly, you need to consistently engage with the tribe And finally, you must monetize the tribe because without any paying members of the tribe, there are no events. It's now my time to climb back up on my soapbox. College sports and universities in general now find themselves in big trouble. The coronavirus didn't cause it, but it merely exposed it. You see, public universities have long been on what I call institutional welfare. They simply have had little to no fiscal accountability because deep down where they live, they feel the state legislature and our tax money will bail them out. Well, not now. The states are broke, too. And it's even worse for college athletics because not only have most of them been on institutional welfare, they've also been on institutional cocaine. (laughs) They're used to spending someone else's money and spending all of it when they get it. Zero base savings, (laughs) no savings. So let's look at their revenues. They're all in decline. TV rights fees, they're going to decline. Multimedia rights, they're going to be either go away or decline significantly because sponsors are not paying those multimedia rights holders. How about ticket sales? Well, when your governor tells you you can only have 50% of your fans in your stadium, you're going to find you're going to lose a lot of revenue. How about donor fees? Nope. In this economic climate, there are not any donations. And finally, how about that hidden fees, those student activity fees? Well, what happens when Susie doesn't come back to campus but continues to take classes online? Well, then Susie's not paying a student activity fee that so many schools depend on. So I've got two words for you. Uh Uh-oh, the bag man ain't coming. We desperately need a new model to fund athletics, and I'll tell you what that model should be soon on another edition of From the Bridge. And that's my view from the soapbox today. My guest angler today knows a whole lot about tribes. He's Peter Sorkoff, the founder of Atlanta-based agency Seer Worldwide. Peter is one of the great thought leaders in our business today. He's a native Canadian, but he's lived in the U.S. most of his adult life. He's worked with some of the world's biggest brands and best teams and organizations. Before starting SEER, he served as the chief creative officer and EVP for brand for the Atlanta Hawks. Let's welcome Peter to the bridge. Welcome, Peter, to From the Bridge. Uh, We're really glad to have you with us today. Well, thank you, Rick, and thank you for having me. Well, we're talking about all things fans today, and I know you have great insights about fans. But before we get into that, let's let's give the listener a little bit of your background for context. Uh, 
What's your professional journey? I know you're originally a Canadian, but you've lived in Atlanta for a long, long time. I like to remind people that uh, the famous uh, radio and television station WSB stands for Welcome South, brother. So uh, <laughs> we, we welcomed you south. Well, you certainly did. Um, and thank goodness that you did. Uh, it's been a fantastic journey. And uh, while, yes, I am Canadian, we've certainly made our home here in Atlanta and, and been embraced. Um, I think uh, back in 99, we had the uh, the great privilege uh, of being recruited by Turner Sports, my wife and I, uh, to come down to Atlanta and actually help them build out uh, their new NHL franchise at that time, uh, the Atlanta Thrashers. And uh, I was... Uh, prior to that, with the Calgary Flames of the National Hockey League, and of course there was all kinds of great irony in that, mm-hmm. because Atlanta had lost the Flames uh, in 1980, and they had gone to Calgary. So there was actually, uh, interestingly enough, there was two of us who came down from Calgary to help put that team together. Uh, the person who came before me, Bobby Stewart, as the equipment manager, has a great story too. He had actually been the equipment manager of the Atlanta Flames, moved to Calgary, and then basically 20 years later, moved back to Atlanta to help them start the, uh, the uh, Atlanta Thrashers. So um, for me as a Canadian, of course, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was just sort of living a great dream, uh, being able to work in the NHL. Um, I originally started my sports career actually working in the Western Hockey League. My first boss was Brett the Hitman Hart. Uh, so there's all kinds of fun and interesting stuff uh, about our time together there. And, um, you know, you had uh, mentioned a little bit about fandom um, during the introductions. I can tell you that my journey with fandom started even before that. Um, I had actually spent some time very early in the beginning of my career, actually, um, as a therapist and um, doing some work with drug addicted and alcoholic adolescents. So I understood a lot about and was introduced to a lot about what triggers and moves people. And, of course, um, my thirst for understanding more about that was only accelerated in sports. Well, when you got to Atlanta, you probably found out that uh, a lot of the fans didn't know very much about hockey compared to Canadian fans. And that had to be pretty interesting. Yeah, that that was actually part of um, part of why they were looking for for guys like me to come down and help put the team together. It was it was really interesting. Um, most of us who were recruited had been in or around hockey at some point, and so you know I, I sort of joke around that it was a bit of a unicorn time in my career. Uh, Derek Schiller. Uh, ran our shop. He's now the CEO of the Braves. And, um, you know, Jim Pfeiffer was my immediate boss. Uh, he came from the Rangers. Uh, there was another guy, Rob Prydich. He was up from Toronto. Another guy came in from Boston. So, you know, it was, it was really actually kind of fun to be a part of that team because um, we all got the chance to come and have sort of a blank canvas uh, in each of our respective areas to build out. Uh, but we all knew the game, and you're right. There were a lot of um, there were a lot of folks that we were introducing hockey to to the first time. Uh, but I was also surprised because I just wasn't really aware how many transplants uh, were in Atlanta, you know, from northern cities that that did have hockey, or even from the West Coast uh, where they'd been exposed to professional hockey with the Kings, and and even to a certain degree the Sharks and. Uh, so it was, it was just a really interesting time. It was uh, a big kind of Hungarian goulash. <laughs> now, did you go directly from uh, the Thrashers to the Hawks then after that? 
Well, so um, once we got to building the, the thrashers, we were about uh, three years into that process. And uh, we were actually having tremendous success. Uh, most people don't realize this, but uh, the Thrashers in their first year, their inaugural season, actually broke uh, an NHL attendance record um, for, for an inaugural team. And so we had tremendous support. Um, and, and we just, you know, we were doing things a little bit different, I think, uh, certainly different than what Atlanta was accustomed to. And, you know, part of that was... Um, the, the sort of visionary behind that with Derek was, was Dr. Harvey Schiller. Um, and Harvey, you know, sort of ran the entire sort of portfolio at Turner Sports or, or a vast majority of it. And he just wanted everything different. Uh, so, you know, we were the first team to wear a road uniform that was radically different than our home uniform instead of just inverse colors. We were the first team that had a, a secondary logo that was used as a primary on our road jersey. That had never been done before. Uh, Scott Farrell was our play-by-play guy. Certainly that had never been done before. Um, and so, you know, we had built this really, um, I would say, a reverent brand that knew it couldn't come in and be the Braves or be the Falcons and it couldn't be the Hawks. It needed to be something different. So after about three years, um, I was invited to uh, to come in and start working with the Hawks, uh, and then eventually uh, that was just added to my portfolio. And from a game presentation and a fan experience perspective, they asked us to to kind of you know take it down to the studs and rebuild it. Uh, and so we spent uh, the next couple of years after that doing that, and that was really my introduction to the NBA. You know, you mentioned Harvey Schiller. Um, I'm a big fan of his. Um, I have this saying: the speed of the ship's always determined by the speed of the captain and you know he was such a visionary he's he actually went to the citadel here in charleston uh and uh he 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 does a wonderful speech where he talks about the rings that he's won in his professional career with teams and organizations but the only ring he wears is the citadel ring and uh he's a fascinating guy yeah, I got to tell you, it was. Um, I, I have been very fortunate to be exposed to what I think is great leadership um, at a number of stops in in my professional career. And um, you know, Harvey, uh, to me, I, I even feel strange saying Harvey even now. Doctor Schiller yeah. <laughs> uh, was a uh, <laughs> was a uh, you know an imposing figure, um, and his vision was just so clear. But, you know, um, he was just a man that you never felt like you wanted to disappoint. And, you know, what was fantastic about that was you just had a way of bowing people up. And uh, and I think a lot of that obviously was passed along to Derek, um, who I also have a tremendous amount of respect for. Um, you know, they just got things done, like you said, um, in a way that... Um, you know, others just didn't think was possible. And uh, so I think when you come in in an environment like that, where everything is new, there's nothing is tethered to the ground. Uh, for me, that was hugely exciting, but you need leadership like that. Uh, otherwise, I think you can you can end up splashing around a bit. I think you can too, but I also think great leaders give you the right to fail a little bit. You know, anybody that doesn't fail never push the envelope very much. I mean, you can live a life of total non-failure, and, and that's a life that you didn't get anything accomplished. And uh, I think that some of the things that you did, you know, with the Hawks is especially where y'all really looked to, to change the fan atmosphere and, and, and what you did. Talk a little bit about some of the innovative things that you did while you were there. 
Well, I got to tell you, my, my welcome to the NBA season, uh, we won 13 games. And, uh, <laughs> and no, that was not a half season or an abridged season. That was a, that was a full 82 game schedule. And, um, you know, I, I, I think we knew that it was going to be a tough year because, uh, I would say we were in a rebuild, but I think we were in a rebuild of a rebuild. And, um, so, you know, what we knew was that we were not going to be able to count on wins and that we still had it to provide value for people who were, you know, frankly, putting down hard-earned money to, to come and see this product. And so, um, you know, what I had known from my background was a, a great way to sort of disarm people in that way is humor if it's done properly and with good context. And uh, that was, I think, um, you know, very unique in the Atlanta sports landscape. I don't know that, uh, that people were very familiar with that, and we had introduced them to that with the Thrashers. Um, but I don't know that the NBA was also that familiar with it either. And, uh, so we built a, a lot of our show around a very kind of tongue in cheek approach. And, um, you know, we brought the kiss cam down with us and some different things like that. And Ryan Cam and our PA announcer, you know, he would actually be a part of the kiss cam where he was encouraging and literally talking to people as though he was sitting next to them, as opposed to announcer who was announcing at them. And I know that sounds like a simple thing, uh, but even that was really different for people. Um, and, and we were really trying to build intimacy in, in our presentation and in the experience so that people felt a little bit like cheers. You know, and Norm walks in the door and everyone says, Norm, you know, it was kind of, you know, how do we do that in an MBA environment with 20,000 people and, and make it feel warm, like you're actually a part of something. Uh, and in particular, as we were trying to sort of build the equity around what it meant to be a, a season ticket holder. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, uh, those were sort of the early kind of kernels. Um, and then we did a lot of interesting things. Look, you know, we, we trained a hawk. Uh, to actually fly into the games from the from the rafters. The first time we did it, he actually landed on Dominique Wilkins' fist, who, <laughs> you know, I, I still, you know, I still thank him every time I see him because uh, to say he was apprehensive to do it would be a bit of an understatement. But you know, talk about a team guy. He he said he would, and sure enough, that bird flew down and landed on his fist, and um, that was kind of a, a great thing that people talked a lot about for about two or three years until one day the bird didn't fly onto the trainer's fist. He actually bypassed the trainer and flew around for the first quarter. And, and then when we finally got him back, uh, he actually landed on the robotic camera above the backboard. Uh, and uh, we were playing the heat in the first round of the playoffs. Dwayne Wade was going up for a free throw shot and looked up and saw this hawk <laughs> literally staring back at him. And, you know, it's funny, we didn't know at the time, but apparently Dwayne Wade is terrified of snakes and birds of prey. And so he was about to throw the ball at the bird and Jermaine O'Neal ran in and kind of literally wrapped his arms around him to stop him from doing it. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, the bird flew back over to the trainer and we got him. And uh, so when you talk about, you know, leadership, being willing to, to let you, you know, experiment and fail a little bit uh, and innovate, uh, we were, again, extremely fortunate to have an environment like that. Uh, and, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, I give the NBA full credit because I think there was a bit of a love-hate relationship. They, they really, you know, loved that we were trying new things and pushing the boundaries, but they also hated it. Um, so we learned a little uh, lesson quickly that it was, you know, almost better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. So, 
you know, that, that just kind of progressed into all sorts of things. We introduced uh, factory scent marketing to the NBA. We created the fragrance of Sprite uh, for Coca-Cola. And uh, when our players would shoot a successful free throw, the smell of Lyman would actually make its way into the stadium. Uh, you know, we were the first to, uh, to go and include a tool like Tinder. Uh, we created Swipe Right Night as part of our um, new initiatives to, to reach out to a millennial audience, which was part of a larger rebrand. Um, you know, and, and I know that probably today doesn't sound like a really big deal, but uh, four or five years ago, uh, Tinder was still considered pretty taboo, I think, by a lot of people who weren't on the platform or using it. So the idea that we were building an entire game around, you know, swiping right or swiping left uh, at a game to meet somebody um, was seemed pretty revolutionary at the time. Well, that that you know that's uh, rewarding people for their behaviors. And so when you leave the Hawks, you you form this agency called Sear Worldwide that kind of your your foundational approach is really grounded in behavioral science. Let, 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 I want to talk a lot about about the agency because y'all y'all think differently um than than other people talk talk about how that came about and and about behavioral science as your foundation well look i um you know we got through a a really successful rebrand with the hawks um and uh, really again changed a lot of things uh, not just with the franchise we we renamed the team the atlanta hawks basketball club we you know we dropped the term season ticket holder started calling people members um and you know a lot of that um again had to do with the behavioral side where where you know this is where i had actually met susan uh who's just absolutely um brilliant anthropologist and and researcher and you know she had exposed me to a few things that put some structure to some things that i had been thinking about for a long time but but had never sort of seen the science around and um, so really, when we were taking the Hawks to that rebrand, a lot of that was was kind of an experimentation with this new science that I'd been exposed to. And uh, a lot of that behavioral science is, is born around this idea of shared meaning. And when you create shared meaning for people, um, they actually have an instinct to seek that out. And when they find it and they plug into it, and there are a lot of different reasons why they do they will act in incredibly irrational behavior uh, and, and irrational ways to sort of stay a part of that um, and to uh, continue to have their needs met by that. Uh, and, and we can, you know, kind of take the lid off that a little later if you want to and get into, you know, what all that means. Um, but that was seeing that work, Rick, was really kind of invigorating to me. And uh, I had been treated so well by the Hawks. And then at that point, Steve Coonan was our CEO. He was just absolutely a brilliant man uh, and a brilliant marketer who, um, you know, just gave me an even brighter green light to do things. But I just kind of felt like if I was ever going to do it, uh, that was the time to step out uh, while we had had that success. And, and I was sort of brimming with confidence about this this sort of new thing that we had found. So we, you know, we formed the agency around that whole concept of behavioral strategy. The other part of that that really sort of drove my thinking on that was we had been doing a lot of work with the sponsorship or partnership group, uh, helping them define um, partnerships that were built on strategies and not assets. And I really kind of felt 
like that model was honestly broken. And we were hearing from a lot of brands, uh, big brands, that they didn't just need more assets. They actually needed teams to help them form strategies to take the relevance that the team had with that audience and counter-transfer that relevance to the brand. Um, and, and behavioral strategy is, is really at its core um, capable of doing that. So that's when, uh, that's when we stepped out and started the shop. Uh, it is very different. You're right. Um, we know it's not for everybody. Uh, I think for, for some folks, it's, um, you know, it, it just feels like it's a little too deep, like they just don't want to go that far. But I think for the people who spend a little bit of time with it and then really understand that's why their fans are their fans, um, it's almost like a sixth dimension. It's a little bit unfair. Like you, you know, you, you get a, an extra depth in your vision. Um, the key is just being able to really honor that so that that's used to enhance what your customers or your fans are coming to the property for, uh, if that makes sense. Well, you talk a lot about fandom. Um, tell me how you define it. Well, really, um, you know, fandom, there, there is an object of fandom that people circle around. Um, and, you know, what was really intriguing for me, I, I had only really become familiar with fandom as it related to sports because of, you know, the focus of my career. But what Susan really sort of introduced me to was the idea that the, the, the really the foundational structure of what holds fandom together um, is actually very similar in a lot of other industries, in particular music and fashion, uh, entertainment, film, uh, video games. Um, and I don't mean, um, you know, esports and, and competing. It's obvious there, but just people playing video games and being fans of video games um, to the point that it was a little sort of unnerving because, you know, really even organized religion shares some very similar structure as, as some of these other areas do in fandom. And that's not to, you know, make light of that. Um, but there is an object that people really rally around. And because there is so much uh, culture wrapped around that and there is um, so much shared meaning in what the object of fandom represents, it actually binds and brings people together that otherwise might not intersect each other in, in their normal lives. Um, and, and so that's really, you know, to me, what was so interesting was the power of that. And I saw that in the NBA and in particular in Atlanta. Um, you know, this is a, a city that, you know, has a very tumultuous history that I don't have to explain to anybody who's listening. Um, and, you know, I would sit there and I would be at games and I would watch and I could see people who were young and old, black and white, you know, um, Jewish and Christian. And, you know, we go on and on about all the other things in our in our sort of you know cultural world that separate us. And then they'd be at this basketball game and you'd see him slapping hands and high fiving. And but it was the only place they saw each other and did that. And so there's a tremendous amount of power in that. Um, and, and I got to tell you one other quick thing on, on, on an aside on that. Um, having not gone to college in the United States and then being introduced to the U.S. college system and, and just sort of seeing it, um, I was absolutely floored at the depth of fandom in college sports. And, and we, I really wanted to understand that, too, because – it doesn't exist in the same way as it does in pro sports. It, I, honestly, I think it's deeper. And uh, that has a lot to do with, you know, the, the development of people's identities. And, and that's the other part, just to bring you back to this. You know, the things that we're a fan of have a lot to do 
with our personal identity and the things that we're a fan of say a lot about who we are. And, um, you know, our, our identity is also um, instrumental in helping us get organized in the world in terms of, you know, what we like and dislike, the things that we think are beautiful and ugly, the things that we think are tasty and not tasty. You and I were talking a little bit about food and, you know, the food seat in, in Charleston. Um, you know, there are people that are fans of food. and We've seen that. They even have a name now, Foodies. Right. Um, and there's television shows for them and there's movies about it. And so it's, it's a very actually pervasive um, structure or concept in, in our society today. We just don't necessarily uh, call it fandom in all those other spaces because it's just so prevalent in sports. I had, a, I had another Canadian friend one time that said to me, he said, Rick, College football is like a religion down in the South, isn't it? And I said, oh, no, it's a lot more important than that. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? I mean, we're, uh, <clears throat> you know, if anything's going to find a, anybody's going to find a cure for this uh, coronavirus, it will be a college football fan because they're not going to be able to live without uh, college football. We we suffered not having March Madness. We'll go crazy without having college football. So, uh yeah, that's the true, I guess, definition of fandom is uh, you, you'll put your health at risk uh, to say roll tide or go Tigers or, or or whatever. You have a wonderful quote on your website from Albert Einstein about the rational versus the intuitive mind. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's so critical to really understanding why people – behave the way they do and why fans act the way they do. Yeah, look, you know, as, as I got deeper into this and, and really wanted to understand the mechanics of this, because, you know, we, we have been building strategy on this conceptually um, and, and it was working and, and the thinking was, man, if we could really take this thing apart, then we could, you know, potentially understand how to make fans um, or reduce the churn of people, you know, basically falling off as fans and, and really wanted to kind of understand how do both of those things happen? Um, there's a, a tremendous author. He's actually a professor at NYU, um, who has done a, a humongous amount of work in moral foundation theory. Um, Jonathan Haidt, he's got a couple great books out there. If, if anyone listening is, is interested, um, the happiness hypothesis was one of his early books. Um, absolutely brilliant. And then the righteous mind, he really goes into some depth and, and frankly uses, uh, religion and politics to explain sort of the two sides, uh, of the human mind. And, you know, when we talk about this a lot, Rick, um, most of business has been really focused around the rational mind. And, and that is largely predicated on this, you know, phenomenon called uh, homius economis, which is basically the, the thinking that all human beings act as rational agents and make rational decisions. And I think what we have come to realize, and now the science and math proves this out, is that that's actually incorrect, that actually 99% of the decisions that somebody makes are not made in their rational mind. They're actually made in their subconscious um, and the subconscious mind has no capability for um, language, nor does it have capability for rationality, but it's where all emotion stems from. 
And, you know, again, the vast majority of decisions we make are emotive or motivated by how we feel about something. So what's really important to know about that is um, that that subconscious, that portion of your mind is capable of disseminating and filing through information and inputs so much faster than your rational mind that it's literally making decisions in nanoseconds on things. And anybody who, um, you know, is not sure that they buy in or believe this, there's another great book called Stealing Fire. And in, in the book, they talk about how the Navy SEALs have gotten focused on this in the last 10 or, or 12 years and have really gone deep into neuroscience because what they realized is, you know, um, on an operate on an operation or, or in the field, they actually have to act as a singular unit, almost as one mind. And they talk about literally they've named it, they call it switch where each individual is capable of basically switching off their individuality and just plugging into being one organism. Um, and, and that's only really possible when they're allowing themselves to operate in their subconscious. So, you know, all of that is to say that, you know, when you look at fandom and you start to get into how people are behaving in those environments, and, you know, you gave some examples about college football, and I always kind of joke around about the idea, because I used to run retail as part of my responsibilities, you know, I would see somebody come in and spend $250 on a, on a you know, shirt that had no sleeves on it, another man's name on the back, and you know, that guy was probably going to wear it once or maybe two or three times in a year, right? For $250. Um, you know, that's incredibly irrational. Um, but it's where people allow themselves to kind of like turn their rational mind off and just be in sort of the, you know, the pleasure of their, of their subconscious mind for three or four hours in that environment. Uh, and that's that's literally, you know, the difference in, in how they justify basically making the decisions they do to buy a beer that, you know, if they were to spend the same amount, they'd probably buy a six pack at the grocery store, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So, well, I started so this uh, I started this podcast today with a quote from one of my mentors, Chuck Jarvie, who, who he defined an affinity group as a group that would suspend rational behavior in pursuit of the passions. And now you've really got the science behind that. Let's take that science. What can we do to gain and keep better fans using the scientific principles that you've been talking about? Well, I I think there's a couple of things. One, you have to understand why people are drawn to the object of fandom. Right. So, you know, look, my my daughter is headed to Georgia uh, in the fall. And so she's going to get fully immersed in in sort of this culture. Um, if if UGA can't define what it is and what it stands for and why it holds relevance with the audience, it holds relevance with. Then it can't ever really tap into the power of that fandom concept, right? So, you know, one of the things with the teams that we work with and, and frankly with the brands we work with on the other side of the table who are working with teams, it is to start breaking that down. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, um, and this is not a knock on teams because look, I lived in that world for 20 plus years. You don't have a lot of time to sit around and sort of pontificate about your brand 
because, you know, in baseball, you got 81 games you have to sell. And, and some of them are coming in batches of eight or 10 days in a row. But um, I think it is prudent to sort of take a pause or find time in the offseason to take a step back from sort of the tyranny of, of the urgent that is always the case in sports and be able to actually put words around what it is that the team or the entity or the institution stands for. And words are really, really important in, in this sphere that we're talking about, because what we also know about the subconscious mind is there's a lot of loaded words. So there might be a word that means one thing to me and means something different to you, Rick, and, and might mean something completely different to your wife. And, and all of us are right, by the way, right? It's not a matter of right or wrong. So if the brand doesn't actually add context and define the meaning of that word, not the definition, the meaning of the word as they're using it, then it becomes problematic because what we know about the subconscious mind, there's a phenomenon called confabulation, where if you leave gaps, people will fill them and they'll fill them with the thing that they have a bias towards. And that's where things also start falling apart or you will actually repel fans so um, it's almost, you know, it's like that old story with the media. If you don't tell your own story, they'll be glad to do it for you. Um, and, and fandom has, has got a lot to do in the same way. You know, sports has been able to survive on this, I think, for a long time, partly because fandom is so prevalent. But if you look at other sectors where, you know, the fandom is narrower, if they make mistakes in that area, it can literally kill a business. So, you know, we've always looked at sports to say, holy cow, if we could really help sports teams understand this and leagues to understand this, um, and conferences to understand this. It's a deeply powerful concept where you don't get stuck working on sort of all your tactics when you don't really have a strategy. I'm hoping that uh, teams and leagues have taken advantage of this, um, this hiatus during the coronavirus pandemic to really think differently about their fans and about again i love that term meaning you know because when i say i'm a fan of you know georgia tech there's there's a deeper meaning there that's really in in, in some ways i can't even describe we have seen some studies that show if you bring a child to a sporting event before they're 4 years old that there's this indelible imprint on them and that even though they may go to a different university or have a different professional sports team they follow later on, they'll always have deep down inside this love of that first love, <laughs> of that initial experience. You know, Disney really gets it uh, with their my first trip to Disney, you know, where they give you a big old button and everybody that there, you know, greets you and, and warmly tells you how glad they are that you're at Disney because you've been you've been called out with that button. And um, I think we need to do more of that in sport because we begin to build that early link. Uh, but, you know, there's, you can fall in love anytime uh, at any stage of your life. And, and falling in love with teams and leagues, I think, is really critical. I'm going to have to let you go, Peter, today. Um, we got to get you back soon because I want to go a lot deeper on this uh, and really talk about, you know, how organizations fail to have strategies, and then it really doesn't matter what tactic they have. <laughs> it's it's the ready, fire, aim method of marketing, and it seems to be more prevalent today than ever. You, you said something interesting today, and let's close with this. 
you said that too few people want to go to this depth um, because it's hard, uh, but yeah. they but they have to. I mean, to be really, really successful, I think we've gotten away with playing checkers too long, and we got to play chess now, you know, going forward. Yeah, no, look, I, I think you're right, Rick, and and you know, kind of the state of the you know the current world right now is is driving that home uh, maybe more than ever before. Um, you know, I, I think all the old models uh, are all being challenged right now. And I don't know that that's a terrible thing. Um, you know, I, I think there's going to be a group of people that are going to see a lot of opportunity in the chaos right now. And they're, they're going to sort of usher in, you know, whatever comes next. And I think it's going to be better. I, I really do. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's sports is going to have a big, big part in that because so much of it has to do with belonging. And I think what you're seeing right now is, you know, people are really, searching for things to belong to good, bad, or indifferent. Right. Um, I don't stand in judgment of it one way or the other. Um, but what I know is, is it is literally instinct for people to belong to things. And, and sports is just such a brilliant thing to belong to for a lot of different reasons. I so agree. I'd, I'd be I, happy I think to it come can, back. Yeah. I think it can heal people. You know, we, we, we've, Perform this tagline at Fishbait that says, when we get back together, let's give back together. It's not only about the giving process of giving to charities or giving to causes. It's, it's giving of ourselves to be more understanding of others. If you're part of the tribe, then I want to go deeper and learn more about you. You know, the person sitting next to me. Um, somebody wrote something last week to me that I thought was really interesting. It said, let's spend more time trying to understand and less time trying to be understood. <laughs> and yeah. I really believe that the more we understand about human behaviors, uh, then the more we're able to, we're going to be able to help people. So, Peter, I can't thank you enough for being with us today from the bridge. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Rick. We'll close today's show with another On the Road with Rick. Since my guest angler, Peter Sorkoff, lives in Atlanta, I thought I'd feature another Atlanta institution, the famous Varsity. This is the place to find fans on Georgia Tech game days because it's literally across the street from the Tech campus and the historic Grant Field. Speaking of Grant Field, have you seen the photos of Georgia Tech fans in the stands in 1918 during the Spanish flu epidemic? They're all wearing masks. That's right. There's nothing under the sun that's ever new. There's a great connection with the founder of the Varsity in Georgia Tech. The restaurant's founder was a guy named Frank Gordy, and he was a Tech student, but he flunked out. And he had a professor that told him, you're never going to amount to anything. So the guy took a little bit of his savings, and he went across the street, and he built a hamburger stand. And there's a legendary story that years later, um, Frank offered that professor triple his salary to come be his janitor, just to prove a point. It's now the world's largest hamburger stand. One of the joys of the varsity are the car hops. You still can pull in, and they'll come out, and they'll take your order, and you'll sit in your car, and they'll bring you a tray, and you'll actually eat uh, your lunch or dinner literally from your car. 
there are lots of choices of things to eat. Of course, they got great hamburgers. They have amazing chili and slaw dogs. They have wonderful onion rings and fries. You call those rings and strings. They have a special soft drink called a Varsity Orange, but they really serve a lot of Coke products. Uh, for those that have been to the Varsity, the Coca-Cola World Headquarters is literally across the street. Um, they also have one of my favorite uh, things, fried pies, fried apple and fried peach pies. And they also have really, really good pimento cheese sandwiches, but very few people eat them because the other stuff's too good. They have a special language when you order. They'll say, what do you have? What do you have? You have. You better know what you're having because they don't have much time to wait. I like to get two dogs walking. What does that mean? That means they're to go. So they put them in a little box and they take them out. A lot of times you'll see little kids and they want a naked dog. That's just a hot dog. They don't want anything on it. And then mom or dad can fix it the way they really like. The Varsity's a really fun place. It's the famous restaurant in Atlanta on the road with Rick. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks to Peter Sorkoff for a great conversation. We'll look for you next week from the bridge. <laughs>